0: This is the grey zone, where I don't know the date or the time, and uh, we're late uh, to get started. But uh, here we are. This is the grey zone. It's a grey zone. Time and space. More professional oh, intro this time. How do we like that? I liked it. Nailed it. It wouldn't be back. the grey zone if we didn't fail to deliver on our promises. And last week we said... Uh, we, we made a promise in haste, which is always a mistake. We said that we would come back with our list of top five coaches of all time. And neither one of us has really done that. Um, I can throw it, I can throw out a bit of a draft for you, but, um, but I think it does actually lead into an interesting discussion though, of like the reason this all started, I'll, 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 preface it a little bit, which is to say that like, I've been, you know, I think plenty of, um, industries or people in other professions make a habit of studying the most successful in those, in those professions. Right. And there's whole books written on the topic. If you look at like Jim Collins, good to great and built to last, like he had a very systematic way of going and looking and saying, okay, what what are the most successful companies of all time? How do I, how do I define that? How do I measure that? And then what do they have in common? And he, you know, made a whole career out of writing books on the topic. Um, But I think it's, it can be trickier with regards to coaching because of course you have coaches that coach men's, women's, singles, doubles. Um, You have coaches who coached 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when the game was arguably different. Um, You have coaches in different parts of the world. You have coaches who, of course, market themselves really well and then earn more opportunities. Does that make them better, necessarily? It's also very difficult in coaching. Um, I mean, it's to a certain extent true in terms of, like, running a corporation, but it's very difficult in coaching because, of course, you know, you – um, you know, you're restricted by the level of potential that the athlete has, but then also you can do an amazing job to take a player from zero to 15 and then someone else can take a player from, uh, you know, 40 to 42 if we talk on the grand scale of tennis that I just made up. But like, you know, you know what I mean? Taking someone from their first ball to playing Futures It's a heck of an achievement. But then of course you can also take someone from being 300 in the rankings to 100 ATP. And that's also an achievement, but how do you measure which one is greater? So I think it's very difficult, but the reason I think it's interesting or at least somewhat worthwhile is not to like, you know, put up clickbaity articles on who's the best coach of all time. But I think, I think to have some sort of framework to then say, okay, who can we, to then go and study them? Because I think that that's what I like to do is to then go and study and see, okay, what were their values? What were their principles? What was their methodology? And are there any commonalities? Are there any common factors between these coaches that can give us some insights into what's required to be um, a successful tennis coach? So that's kind of the the leading uh, or the guiding philosophy for me is is um, you know is to do an analysis or to do a study of what makes uh a good coach and then or what makes a great coach let's say that because we know what makes a good coach i think anyway, you know we can read lots of articles and, and infographics and posters about that but in terms of being the some uh, among the most successful of all time um yeah what what makes someone uh on that list and what can we what can we learn from it yeah so that's I think yeah
1: i'll do Go you on. one better what is a coach no i don't know thank you uh, yeah no, you, I think you you sum that up pretty well there, Zach. And I think there's lots of lots of characteristics that go into it. We're we talking we talking just tennis, or are we talking across multiple sports here.
0: Let's say just tennis. Okay. Um, I'm out. I don't know. I think that makes it little, I think that makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, or I mean, it makes it. Yeah. I think otherwise, there's just so many people to consider. I'll I'll throw this at you here. Um, okay. You know, in terms of what qualifies someone to be on the list. Um, you know, I just jotted down a couple of things. I think for one thing is, uh, you know, coaching at a high level, like at the highest levels of the game, I feel Good like start. that's, I yeah. feel like that's, I feel like that's required. And if, it's not to say that you can't be an amazing coach and take someone, like I said, from their first ever ball to being national champion or to being, to winning titles or whatever in juniors. But like, um, I don't know. I feel like some involvement in the pro game is required for that. That's just my feeling. Uh, but I also think there's an aspect of longevity. I think like, you can't just be a one and done sort of thing. Like you have to have done it numerous times or or over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also put adaptability, like you can't just be like, Oh, all, all their players have great serves or their players are only good on clay. Um, uh, and so I think there's that aspect, I think, you know, repeatability, being able to coach multiple players, uh, to good results yeah um and then there's also has to be some factor of like the distance traveled like where where was their level when they started with the coach and where was their level when they ended with the coach yeah i think that's i good. kind of i kind of had that down as my my five
1: characteristics or my five uh, criteria but that was just off the top well, of my head and just to jump in on the um repeatability thing um and maybe this gets into like how we number the coaches but i'd be remiss if if it didn't start with like a louis caille quote which is uh he came to do one of our seminars in, in Canada. This is, I guess, pre-pandemic. And he his whole his whole concept was on beating randomness, right? And mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this on the on the pod before, but how many, how many coaches or players or clubs throughout their years will guess will kind of walk into having this one player that's really, really strong and really, really good. And the chances are like every academy sooner or later will. But Louis's whole thing on beating randomness is like, well, what are the academies or countries or programs where it's not random? It's like it's like every year, every two years, they have this player that's like ridiculous. So I think I'd start with um that really impacted the way that I think about it uh, in terms of what is great coaching or, or what's a great program to be more specific. Um and that maybe segue segway, segues into like our number thing where because it's come up so much in the pod already, like where where do you have a guy like Louis Kai in the list?
0: Yeah, well, I mean that's yeah, I mean I didn't I didn't make a list, but that is that is the interesting one because of course you have you hit the nail on the head with the repeatability point. Um but then, like, obviously, he spent so much time specializing in doubles, yeah. right? And he had good singles success early in his career. Um, but he spent so much time specializing in doubles, and doubles just doesn't get as much respect as singles, uh, for better or for worse. Um, well, Leo Pelka so thinks
1: I, it shouldn't exist. Yeah,
0: exactly. Should we get into that one? So, I mean, like, I don't think I think like I think there's plenty of people who could name all the famous coaches in the world and not know who he is. And of course, yeah. fame doesn't mean you're better or worse coach. But I just mean, like, you know, can can you be considered one of the greatest coaches of all time without having with without having a bigger singles resume than doubles resume?
1: I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think so because I think I think behind the scenes he's probably helped a lot more players in singles than most realize. Mm, Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but to segue a little bit, you know that that YouTube channel where that kid? that British kid is like trying to get ATV points and like trying to go on his journey and stuff. You know, like,
0: yeah, 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 sure.
1: Yeah. So anyway, one that when he was getting started, he had said something like he, he, he was out with Patrick Mordegallo for like a session. Mm. And on like the thumbnail of his video, it was like something with, with the world's best coach, the world's most influential coach or something like that, uh, Patrick yeah. Mordegallo. And I guess commented because I'm an asshole. And I was like, <laughs> what's, your, what's your metric for him being the best coach or whatever the statement that he was. <laughs> And he actually responded. He seems like a nice enough kid, to be honest. Um, I think so. Yeah. But he, he he responded and he was just like, "Well, I just went uh, strictly based on Instagram followers. He's got the most <laughs> followers of anybody, so he's probably the most popular, the most well-known coach in the world." Is that what he said? Yeah. That's good honesty. <laughs> it's good honesty, and also like I couldn't debate that. I was like, "Yeah, that kind of makes sense." Yeah, well, I mean, definitely
0: makes him the most well known.
1: Well known. Yeah. Uh, I mean, doesn't yeah. make him the, the best. I don't think he ever said best, but it was something like that, like uh, with the most yeah. popular coach in the world or something like right, that. Right, right. Um,
0: I, I, I love, I, <laughs> I love Al getting into internet debates. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. What was that video I found? And it was from like ten years ago. <laughs> and I just looked down at the comments, and you had written something snarky.
1: Jeez. <laughs> oh, it's not a good I'll, thing, Zach. This is a problem. I have,
0: have to find what that was. I think it's great. I don't I have the guts of to do it. good detours
1: in me, and it's like all bets are off. Look out, YouTube! Here I come.
0: There's <laughs> so much bullshit out there. I think it's so good when we get
1: someone who's brave enough to call it out because yeah. I'm not. But yeah, segue again, because one thing, and this is not about the coaching conversation, but ah. what I'd really like to do in in next time I a with certification is like one of the homework assignments is to say to people like, "Hey, you got to go on go on YouTube and find coaching coaching." videos um and you guys don't you don't need to comment on it but you need to break down like why the video is full of shit because i do think it's important for coaches sometimes people to look at something and be like okay this is this is this is why this is shit um now again that's like a, if i were to post a video on this is the reason i don't post coaching videos is because there's a lot of people who be like this is why it's shit and it would hurt my feelings and it'd have more muskoka detours and then i would fall into be commenting more on other people's posts no, sorry for the divergence there, but vicious cycle. No, but I think, I think you're, I think you're
0: actually right though. I thought you were going to say it's their homework assignment is to go and trash someone online, but no, I think like it is, it's very easy um, to look at something and go like, that's crap. And then to force yourself to go like, okay, why is it crap? And how would I do it differently? Is like 10 times more work and it, but it's good work to really break it down and go like, "Mm, well, okay. And then, and then to also consider like, what are the situations in which actually this wouldn't be crap? In other words, what's the background info? And it's like, Oh, well, what if the kid, you know, uh, you know, his parent just died and they're just coming back on court. And so that's why the session is so chill. And, and then you go like, ah, well, okay, that's justified then <laughs> it's like, no, but like to yeah. consider like, okay, what's the possible background information that I'm missing here. Right. Um, I think is really interesting. I think it just like fills out your perspective on how you go about doing things as opposed to going like, this is the way I coach and every session should look like this. Yeah. Um, So I think it's, I think it's really interesting, but no, I I just, I don't know. just to go, just to go back briefly to the coaching thing. I think like, I'll just throw out like some interesting ones because like you have Tony Nadal, for instance, who uh, of course did an amazing job with Rafa, um, but it's only one player. And so you have this like longevity thing where he coached him for such a long time, coached him to such a high level, took him from point A to point B, a remarkable rise, but it was only one player. Now, do I think it was Luck? Of course not. It, clearly, he's an excellent coach. Right. But would he be able to do it with someone else?
1: I don't and know. I, and I think that's the big thing. Is like most of the time that somebody makes it with somebody or develops somebody from from nothing or, or from a beginner to being on the HB tour, it's uh, incredibly rare that a coach goes back in and does it again. So I think that's mm-hmm. why we don't have this. We don't have coaches that have these resumes of like having taken so many kids from an academy level to a pro level because mm. usually the, you don't go your career trajectory trajectory doesn't go backwards as a coach right
0: right nice yeah that. uh, that's fair enough what's your what so what's your take on voluntary
1: so voluntary is one where and as i've tried to mature a little bit as a coach voluntary probably is statistically like the most successful coach of all time or at least mm-hmm. one of them and now it's okay. funny because i like said the point about like most people don't do x but like He's obviously inherited a lot of great players but for the most part a lot of the players that they've sponsored in their program have ended up being like incredible yep. now i can sit there and like i've watched a lot of voluntary stuff and like i i mean he's his pedagogy is much different than yours or mine but he still yep. finds a way to get the job done. And i thought the same when i watched robert Landsdorp. um he was another versus, one on my potential list yeah there's certainly things i don't agree with but if you look at like his track record of how many pros that he's developed is like incredible yeah yeah um yeah so yeah that... go
0: ahead well oh no, i was just gonna say I'll, I'll i'll wrap this up um uh as always, a very typical gray zone fashion with no conclusion but i'll wrap this up with one thing to to think about which is as i started compiling this list like i said the whole the whole purpose was to then go and and sort of study these coaches in a very you know not informal way but to just look at videos of them talking and press conferences and just read what players said about them and stuff. And the one thing that kept on coming back out of all of them is maybe not surprising to anyone, but I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's worth mentioning is every one of them was described as being essentially incredibly tough and demanding, right? Mm. Borderline asshole-ish. I mean, certainly Lansdorff gives off that persona when you hear him, hear him talk and read what people said about him. Boletiri of course, like the, the, the uh, tellings of the way the academy was run and the work that they had to do was incredibly demanding, incredibly tough. Yeah. Um. But then I was listening to an interview with Tony Nadal if, uh, last week or the week before. And in the first like six minutes, he says like, oh yeah, my nephew often said it was uh, easier to play the final of a tournament than to train with me. Like I was super demanding. And like, I've got other people on this list, like uh, Yvonne Lendl and stuff. And like, and of course, Louis, of course, known for being demanding. So like, it seems to be a very uh it seems to be a common trait is incredibly demanding and in some cases i would say um authoritarian right certainly in the case of like the boleterians and the Landsdorfs. it feels like the the philosophy is very much do as i say yeah which goes counter to the the prevalent dialogue these days around giving kids autonomy and giving kids responsibility which i'm not necessarily against but i think it's interesting there's i don't think there's any of these like greatest potential greatest of all time coaches with numerous successes where the players go like oh yeah he or she was so chill uh they were so you know they let me do things my way it was so like you don't you just don't hear that you know Darren Cahill I think is like excellent coach and often described as being very very nice he's the only one I can think of um but he also (laughs) I mean stopped working with Hallett because he was like your attitude's shit so I'm done so like
1: Yeah. yeah it, Would it seems be like a, really a common there's trait more in variability it. in the personalities at the pro level though like you'll i think you can find more guys like darren once you get to the pro level but i think it's it's much more common getting people to pros that there's a high levels of um demand and i guess and to say that too i think a lot of coaches showed being demanding in a multitude of different way, w- ways right um so it might not just be like this one way street of how they were demanding. And it's, I think it's like it's certainly having high standards and being, being tough, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're whipping the athlete when when they lose. And I'd be curious, like what. They're Yeah, for sure. They're all demanding. Now, how does, how does what they demand vary from coach to coach? I, I'd find that to be very interesting. Right. Definitely. Can you go into
0: more detail on that? Cause I think that makes perfect sense, but can you go into more detail on like different ways that coaches can be demanding?
1: I mean, I can, I can try. I mean, the only thing I'd say is I think, uh I'm perceived as having quite a, quite a laid-back demeanor on court but I think there's certainly things that I'm very demanding over and one is like uh like just the effort like the, the give-a-shit factor and like for the the entire time that we're out there it's like just putting as much effort into everything that's going on as possible I think and that's how like does that explanation right now uh, uh, the counterpart of that is like um I spent a lot of time around Adriano 40 where it's like he's very his sessions are very physically demanding on his players where there's, like, lots of running. Um, there's lots of running. Mm-hmm. To be clear, there's lots of running. You know what I mean? And that's, like, that's his way of being demanding. And it's just ball after ball after ball with with very little breaks. And there might not be a ton of feedback all the time, but it's pretty much just, like, he's very demanding on, like, the amount of volume, uh, how often the ball goes on the court, and the amount that he's going to try to put you through physical hell throughout a session. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, Adriano is incredibly demanding. I think I have traits that are demanding um but so just within that i think there's multiple ways that people can be demanding um so i'd be curious for the greats of like do they all have the same characteristics of what what they did to be demanding i guess or were there varying characteristics within the greats of how demanding they were do you know what i mean yeah
0: no that's a really interesting question can i ask follow up though like you said when you say you're demanding on effort and intensity or however you described it how does that demandingness, if we want to call it that, uh, present itself? How does that, how is that made visible?
1: Um. Well, I think I think verbally. I mean, you start starts with that. It's like I think. Um, I think if there's a time that the the court or session doesn't look a certain way, I'm certainly on the athletes. But I also think that I tend to be a little bit more. I like athletes to be intrinsically motivated, and I think mm-hmm. what I'll try to do if if the uh the quality of a session is is not there. It's like, and I don't want to say guilt trip, but it's almost like guilt trip in a sense where it's like, it's not, I won't make you run if you don't want to run. But if you mm-hmm. come to a session, my, my hope is that I can somehow inspire you to work as hard as I think you need to work in that given session. You know what I mean? Which I'm yeah. very lucky that I work with athletes that are quite driven and most of them are, well, they're, they're all high performance, right? But would that approach work in a recreational, recreational setting if I wanted to, get athletes to work hard probably not mm. did that answer your question at all or
0: yeah I think so I guess like I I, I think it's a, I think it's a starting point because I think I'd imagine I mean, I've never seen Adriana coach I've spoken to him a few times but I, I you know I imagine that he makes his demand clear through through verbal means as well
1: yeah that's right the consequence most of the time right
0: right and so I guess that's I, I guess that, I think that would be I mean I'm always a structure guy as everyone knows so like I think putting things into a structure of like, okay, if you are demanding, what are the different ways that can be made clear? Is it through the structure, you know, the structure of the session, like the types of drills? Is it through your verbal? Is it through physical consequences? Is it through kicking them out? Like, I don't know, but like um, establishing some sort of a framework around, uh, around that, because I think most of the time when we think of coaches being demanding, it's, it's verbally, maybe not, but verbally and in the number of balls hit generally speaking is what it feels like it's like oh yeah he made me hit a million balls or like he's always on me he's always you know loud voice high intensity like so when you describe yourself as being a little bit more laid back but then still demanding I'm just curious how that how that manifests
1: itself but I think you did a did a good job of explaining it but how would you consider yourself like what what makes you demanding
0: um I think I don't know that's a good question. I mean, that's partly why I'm engaging in this reflection and 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 looking at these coaches is trying to assess like, am I at the right level of of demand or not? Um, but I think, I think in terms of, you know, I try to make sure I try to make sure we're hitting a lot of balls. Obviously, I mean that sounds that sounds so simple, but like I think in terms of ball in terms of balls hit, um, and I think in terms of, um, I think I try to play with time a lot so reducing rest if there's either 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 play with movement or with time so either making sure that there's a lot of movement in the drills Hmm. or to play with time and to say okay we do one minute drills we do two minute drills and then rest and then we go again to make sure that that the players can maintain their intensity for a full minute full two minutes because i think that gets pretty demanding
1: physically and mentally that's kind of a built-in demand right it's sort of like yeah i think it's a good way to like setting it I guess a demanding standard without it necessarily being you to be the one to be like, let's go on delay, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then I think I'd say, I try to, I try to, I try to be demanding, I guess, through repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to be demanding in a way that's, that it presents the demand as actually something fun and something to be grateful for. Because, of course, anytime something's being demanded of you, it's a chance to step up to the challenge and it's, it's a chance to become better. Um, yeah. But I think I, I impose a lot of demand in, or I try to impose demand in terms of, you know, if we don't do it properly, we're going to do it again. Right. And if it's not good enough, we're going to do it again. And we're going to do uh, where well, the session's going to go longer or we're going to do an extra session or we're going to go back to this again, like just through through repetition, I think. But I don't know. It's something I'm reflecting on right now. So I don't think I have a particularly good answer on it.
1: Right. This last thought I had as you're talking about it is in, in seeing a bunch of different programs around the country. Um, I think the consistency of how a coach is demanding is incredibly important. Mm. And just to be more specific, I've seen a lot of programs where out of nowhere, and we, we we're sometimes guilty of this. And sometimes if, I, if, I'm, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm guilty of this and I'm really trying to change this. But like out of nowhere, um, I might snap on a kid and, and ask something of him that's uncharacteristic. Uh, and so you see the kid get his back up a little bit, and it's like it's almost not fair in the sense of like the way that I'd like to be demanding is consistent. So at least the athlete knows every day that they show up, it's like this is the this is the bare minimum, like this is the bare minimum of what, what's required. Um, but I think sometimes when coaches deviate from that and like something changes, where like all of a sudden you get upset with them for something that wasn't mm. set as being a standard, um, I yeah. think that becomes challenging. And I, I don't think I explained that well. So maybe you can clean that up for me, Zach.
0: Yeah, I actually think you, I think you nailed it. And, and I'll say 100%. It's one of those things that in every single uh, survey of athletes, when they're asked, you know, what do you appreciate in your coach or what do you look for in a coach? I think across the board, it never fails to come up is what I would term emotional constancy, which is not my term, but like, or emotional consistency. It's like the coach comes in at the same level of emotion every day it's not one day they're super praising you praising me a ton and super happy and then the next day they're super pissed off and critical coaches want to know what our players want to know what to expect from their coach um otherwise like you said they get their back up and it catches them off guard i think every survey shows that so i think that i yeah that makes that makes perfect sense and and that ties in well with the demand point because yeah if you're super demanding one day and then not the next i think players don't know what to expect fair I mean,
1: as usual, you clean that up for me pretty good. Well done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To tie into that, um, I wanted a little sort of semi-related segue here, but um, I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, the different factors that contribute to the growth of a player, right? Because it's obviously not just the work that we do on court, and it's also not just the work that we do in competition but it's also the funding. It's also the strength and conditioning. It's also their home life. Like there's a million different factors that go into uh, the success of a player beyond just the work that the coach does. And some of those factors we have control over. Some of those factors we don't have control over. Um, But I think there's a worthwhile discussion to be had around creating what I'm going to call a tennis development environment, but creating the right environment for an athlete to grow and develop because i feel like that's equal um you know that's equally our responsibility beyond just the coaching beyond just the how do i set up my sessions how do i work on the technical tactical physical mental how do i you know go to tournaments and prepare them for matches beyond all that stuff it's like do you know do they have access do can they train the right number of hours and if Mm -hmm. not how come and, yeah. you know, is it the, do we have the right ratio of players on court and do we have access to good gym facilities? Do we have appropriate funding for travel? Um, can they socialize in their environment? Like, do are they completely lonely and isolated or do they get the social aspect? Uh, you know, do we do we offer video analysis? Whatever. Do we do t- like uh, access to physio and rehab and prehab and stuff like all of these things are part of the. Um, yeah, are part of the tennis development environment that contribute to the growth of the player. And a large number of them are our responsibility to establish and provide. But I think so much of our discussion revolves around the work that we do on court. Um, So I I think, I think that's interesting. And I guess if we go back to, to like the discussion of coaches, that's another factor is like, what did Volatieri do? Of course he did some good coaching, but he also, you know, established an environment, right? He created an Academy where people could train all day and where they, where they could do school at different hours and where they could live there and work there and, uh, they could go to tournament. Like he created this whole environment beyond just being a coach. He created an environment for their players to grow and develop. So um I'll put you on the spot and throw that out there to you, but like the idea of I guess what makes a good uh tennis development environment. So I,
1: yeah, good question. I think the one thing that Thanks. I would <laughs> that I would start off saying is like the number one thing that makes a good tennis development environment is um Knowing your limitations, in a sense, and I'm going to I'm going to be a bit more specific here where I think it's really important that. OK, this this question was sort of asked to a bunch of bunch of academies across Canada, and it was like. And it was kind of asked by Tennis Canada, it was like, do you think that your environment, you have the means to take a player from being brand new to getting a professional ranking? When was this done? Uh, this was done in uh, without going into too much detail. The, the province of Ontario and I guess high performance coaches Ontario had some summits or meetings with tennis Canada a couple of years ago. This was pre pandemic. Um, and I, as you might imagine, not to get into the big whole thing, but sometimes it's not always the easiest working relationship between um, academy heads and tennis Canada. Now I'll say like TC has always been really good to me. I've, um, And I think TC has always been really, really good to you, but I, I mean that, that hasn't always been the case for a lot of people. So that question was sort of posed in a way to be like, I think she like, As academy leaders, do we understand our limitations and what we can and can't do? And Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting, the coaches reflecting on like, yeah, do they really have the means in their own environment to take player from to be brand new to tennis to being a pro? And there was really only like two academies of the ones that were in the room that that sort of adamantly said like, yeah, we think we can do it. We think we have everything that you said. We have the courts, we have the environment, we have the resources, we have the fitness, we've got um, the IT to be able to do it. Um, So I think it starts number one with like, what's your what is your sweet spot as a program and mm-hmm. what is your goal and mission of what you want to get your athletes to be able to accomplish. And that's a long winded way of saying like understanding that sometimes if you do a really, really good job, your player might grow out of your program. Mm. And are you, uh, I guess as a program, are you uh badass enough to understand that and accept that and help them move on to the next step of where that might be. So that's sort of the basis of where I'd start. Now, I don't think that was sort of, along the lines of like the answer that you were looking for, but I just think to to start off, that's really, really important. No, but that's a, that's a really interesting point
0: and I'm glad you brought it up. I would throw it back at you and say like, do you think tennis as a whole would be better? Or we can just say tennis in Canada, I guess, but like, do you think tennis in Canada would be better if more clubs or academies were a, you know, honest about that, about that stuff to themselves and to, and to the outside world, but also, Maybe specialized and said you know this is this is the only thing that we do you know we we develop players up until this stage and then they and then they grow or can and then they leave or conversely we only take players once they're at this stage and then we take them on from there. do you think that would be beneficial or is it simply impossible because clubs need to make money
1: yeah I think I think it's impossible because clubs need to make money but yes if we lived in a perfect world I think it'd be it would be great if there was a bit more specialization or a bit more. I mean, I think that stuff kind of happens on its own, right? I think some programs um, develop an identity for what they're really strong at. Mm. You know, now, but it's not. It's not implicitly stated by the coaches or the staff that like, hey, this is our goal of what what we're trying to do all the time. But yeah, I think we'd be better off for that. And to jump in on a little bit of that too, it's like I do think for for most organizations, and I guess tennis in Canada, like tennis in Canada, has been the most successful when we've had. Uh, recently when we've had like an incredible amount of international success from high performance athletes and professional athletes. So I think just like with that, with that said, it's like if there's only two of these places in Ontario that really think they can, they can do that from start to finish, then is that a long-term problem for the business of tennis in Canada? But that's a bit of a, that's a much different question than, than what what you and I are talking about right now. But anyway. Um, no. no, but it, it's interesting. I, I mean, cause I guess what I'm, thinking
0: about is simply the fact that like everyone if we talk academies we don't have to talk clubs if we talk academies everyone is in the business of making players better and i think everyone has the goal yeah i think almost everyone has the goal has high aspirations right i think almost every academy is sitting there going we'd like to develop the next felix the next bianca and so on and so forth um you know maybe some people believe in that goal less less than others but i think uh, people are invested in that but i think just generally speaking, if we consider well' I'll re- maybe it's repeating myself, but if we consider all of the factors that go into a player's growth and development, mm-hmm. the actual coaching is just one of them. Yeah, right? There's the nutrition and there's the finances and the sponsorship and the travel and the competition like there's all these other things. Now we can have a debate over which ones play bigger roles. But even if coaching is the is the you know the heaviest weighted one, it's still one of about 15, yeah. right? And, and I don't. And think I would that argue that... it's
1: not okay. Like I've thought this before of a, a player, like a Felix, right? And I don't mean this to be discouraging to, to any coach. And I don't mean to, to diminish what we do as coaches, but seeing Felix as an athlete, what program would he not have made it in? And mm. maybe the answer is that he only would have made it coming from the environment that he came from. But I, I, I I'm a big believer in, in, coaching Canada at least and I'm, I'm not I can't speak to other countries but I think like there would have been a lot of programs that would have been able to do really good stuff with the Felix and I only say that to say this um that I think the coaching one of it all, all the things you outlined is probably pretty low on the totem pole because overall in Canada I think we do a quite a good job of getting the job done there but like nutrition we do a really shitty job with I, just as an example right and there's a lot of other things we do a really shitty job with like the travel thing I think we do an incredibly poor job with the travel part. And like Mm -hmm. the, one of the things that tennis Canada has done a great job is when we do get athletes to a certain point, tennis Canada really is, does a good job of helping athletes travel a lot, or Mm -hmm. at least the top athletes travel a lot. And without that, like, I just don't know how many of these clubs um, have the means or have the staff that are willing to travel a lot because it really, it's like all of us have the ability to get to players to the point where they should be traveling to ITFs, But then like, who do we have on staff that we can send them with? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, like ranking the hierarchy of what of all the things that you said, and maybe there's more of like, what are the ones that are most important to, I guess, the continued development of a of a program or?
0: Yeah. And it depends on the stage of development that the athlete's at, right? Of course, the priorities shift and fluctuate. But yeah. I just think we spend, I think, and I, when I say we, I don't know, I guess I just mean, um, uh yeah coaches in general other coaches i've run into are certainly uh, part of the coach education in canada but i feel like we spend so much energy focused on that aspect which is fair enough because it's what we spend most of our time doing yeah but i think that we have we could have an outsized impact if we were if we chose to influence or attempt to influence those other factors um that we talked about because those play just as big of a role on the development of the athlete but yeah can I? Uh, I'm a segue a little bit here. We're going all over the place, but we always said the we always said the podcast would be informal. On the topic of travel, I have a question for you because you're a savvy businessman and run a very successful, uh, uh, very successful uh, club franchise setup, whatever you want to call it. Rickety um, house of
1: cards, Zach. Rickety house of cards.
0: <laughs> but I have a question for you. Um, I'd say like. Everywhere you go here in Sweden, or I haven't been to every club in Sweden, but I've been to a, a solid number, but almost every club you go to in Sweden, you walk in and all 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 on the all along the walls where the tennis courts are, you see the local hardware store, the local restaurant, some local i t solutions company, and so on and so forth. advertisements everywhere, right? And of course, we can in some places it looks too cluttered and whatever. but like, uh, I mean, right away. I mean, of course, we're the Royal Tennis Hall, so it may be easier to get sponsorships. But we have, and it looks very nice. But we have screens displaying, uh, you know, there's maybe, I don't know, eight or so companies that that have their have their logo and their branding, and and they they're you know. Uh, main head sponsors whatever you want to call them of the club um good to great magnus norman's academy you go there tons of uh they have a name they have a a title sponsor then they have a bunch of other sponsors but even small local clubs you know four court clubs you go in and they've got banner ads all all around um and i feel like i see that i in my time in canada and i also didn't go to every club in canada but in my time in canada i didn't see a ton of that either i saw little bits and pieces but i didn't see a ton of that and that Uh, And I just wonder why that is. And I guess, and like I said, you're in the position of being a, of running a business in in Canada. So I'm curious to get your thoughts, but I just, I'm tying this into the travel piece because we know how incredibly expensive international level tennis is with the amount of travel that you have to do. Um, And it just strikes me that more sort of corporate sponsorships would be so beneficial to the club system in Canada. Um, But there, but I, there might be a reason why that's not happening.
1: Good question, but I also think our our tax system in Canada would allow for that to be the case, right? It's like there's um, financial incentives for companies to be offering money up for to programs, right? And this is like this is the second time Adriano's come up, but that was Adriano's big thing as well. Like he has the same mindset as you. Like why, why is this the case in Canada? So I don't know. To be honest, I'm not sure what the answer is, and maybe the answer is nobody's tried. But um, did he did he do like did he find sponsors? What did he do? Uh, he's trying now. Him and Eddie Moran and Elevated Sports Solutions. Uh, they, uh, they have they set up a not for profit for, that's like a, um, I guess a wing of what they're trying to do, and they're they're securing sponsors for their their high level athletes, and it's pretty good. Like they have a couple girls right now at at the JV one at in, in Indian Wells, which allows Canadians now. I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, it. that's new this year.
1: Yeah, so they're they're sort of doing it, or they've started to do it, which is great. Uh mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a good point man. Like maybe maybe we should all look into doing more of that to help with the travel stuff.
0: And you've never sought out sponsorships at the Supreme
1: Court? No, we <laughs> Um yeah, not not in the way that you're meaning. I mean, we one mm-hmm. there's a company that reached out to us one time and their their player was in our program and she was like, okay. "Hey, um I know I owe you some money for programming, da da, da but i would also love to like sponsor the facility." And I was like, mm-hmm. "Okay, let, let's get after it. Like what's uh what's your company?" And, uh, <laughs> her, the, her husband's company is what's it called when like the opposite of a gynecologist, uh, you're, you're a tholo- you're, yeah, don't know. That it? you're, I Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, that was the organization. So they wanted to put banners up everywhere. That was actually like <laughs> encouraging that, <laughs> like that sort of thing. We're
0: going to, we're going to stick a tube up your,
1: yeah. <laughs> and so for like, uh, shamelessly I've, I've never turned down a sponsorship zach and i wasn't going to start there not no, it so it just wasn't wasn't a fit for um for us but it was, i thought that was hilarious and really kind of them to ask that's so. fantastic
0: yeah that's a good offer yeah that's a good offer
1: but yeah i think um, I, I, i'll apologize i think sometimes like i tell stories that segway as away from what the original question was um Nice. But obviously the travel one is incredibly important. I think we need to be, we need to be a lot cleverer and a lot of environments about how do we raise more money to help the the travel components so that the, the sport just is less of an elitist sport. Cause it still is that like, you still have to have just a shitload of money to be able to, to really make it. Um, yeah. But in your eyes, like going back to the original question in your eyes, what do you think are the the big separating factors or what, what makes a, uh, and you didn't say high performance environment, but you said a, what well, called you call it a
0: tennis, tennis development environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean the own the podium
0: uses the term daily training environment, but I just I, I think it's I think it's not so much about your daily environment as it is about the like the system of support that that's around you. Right. Um but I don't know. I just think like 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 we said, I think it depends on the stage of development that the athlete is at, but I think we should be taking charge of as many of those factors as we can or or at the, at the very least ensuring that that there is something um, being done. It doesn't have to be us that's taking control of it, but ensuring that those aspects are covered, that the boxes are being ticked off. Um, right. Like we said, on the on the nutrition ground, on the physio ground, s S&C, and uh, school support, testing, socializing, uh, competitions board, goal setting, career management, sponsorships, analytics, like all of these things um, contribute. And you have to decide at any point in time What's most relevant and most valuable to the athlete, but I think our role is not ex you know is not exclusively on the court or with a racket in our hand yeah um yeah. but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like I think I think culture is a big one that maybe we don't talk about enough. um the culture of your environment and your academy or your program, I think finances is huge for the reasons that we outlined. Um, I also think, um, staff quality of staff, um, thinking about that. And I also think the amount and the flexibility of court time is huge. I've talked about that before, but it's one of the things that I'm super grateful for here in, in Stockholm at the Royal Tennis Hall is like, um, or the Academy of Click as you call it at the, at KLTK here is like, we have, we can book courts. I mean, we we can have court time whenever we want, and the kids are in online school, so they can train essentially whenever they want. Uh, not entirely true, but for all intents and purposes, um. And if we need an extra court, we book an extra court. If we need a court later in the day, earlier in the day, we book it. Like we're so, okay. so. It's good like- that you have the
1: flexibility to book it. Um. But this is like obviously a massive, massive difference in Canada, and specifically Toronto, and I guess where you are, where like, so you're saying day of if you need an extra court, you can book an extra court day of. I mean, it, let's be clear. It depends on if the members have gotten there
0: already, yeah. right? So, so, so on, like, we, what's that like?
1: Like, what's the turnaround like on when you need to be booking court? Because right now, like, most environments in Canada are if you're not booking seven days in advance, you're fucked. Yeah,
0: yeah, and 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 in a sense, that's that's so good because it shows the health of tennis in Canada. That's essentially the way it is everywhere in in Stockholm, except for us because sure. we're one of the only sort of members only clubs, I and see. the cl- and the club wants it to be. A little. The club doesn't want members to have that problem of like they can right. never get a court, so they right. restrict the membership. But right. we're very fortunate to be in that in that position. um That's But great. I think, but I I think for me, like once again, there's a financial piece here that we have to address. But I think the solution to that is simply to overbook. Right? Is to book more courts than you need for the academy. To say, you know, to say, okay, we're probably going to need two courts, but we'll let's book three courts from, you know, eight to eleven in the morning and a few more and then another three courts from one to four in the afternoon and then two days before we can let them go and we know that some members will pick them up and if they don't then that's uh, that's part of we've budgeted for that because we have the funds now of course easier said than done oh but i sure. think yeah. but but i think that's sort of the that's the 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 solution in those situations
1: right yeah but yeah, yeah. okay that's interesting though. that's interesting to see that you guys have the flexibility because that's the big thing on our end i mean i even got Got a boy coming back from college on wednesday just for like a, a quick quick two days mm. and so he texted me last night and he's like he's like hey can we get some work in and it's kind like sorry all the courts are taken so yeah that's also yeah. like that's also like i mean great problem to have as a business owner and a club owner but in the same sense like man i'd really like to be able to get a court when i want a court you know what i mean but
0: 100 percent, Yeah, exactly it's, it's a good problem but i think that does impact player development Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean i think if if we talk about being athlete centered and like everything we do is for the benefit of the athlete then you know that that goes uh, that's that also applies to our scheduling it also applies to tournament planning tournament selection which tournaments we go to like yeah you need to have you need to have flexibility if you if you truly want to do what's best for the athlete yeah uh, you can't be you can't be sitting there saying oh we don't have the court or the coach isn't available or we can't afford to go to this one like of course i'm talking pie in the sky stuff like you know we're we're talking about the absolute ideal scenario which is so difficult to have but I think yeah. we do have to keep that in the back of our mind because if yeah. we accept that it's just, it's just the way it is then of course we're always going to be limited in the quality of in the results of our athletes
1: for sure for sure yeah well said and a quick anecdotal story for you so um obviously players in our program they're supposed to do a cool down when they are done, done their session right it's supposed to but one of the big challenges is like <laughs> I mean all of our courts are booked at six o'clock we don't really have like a clubhouse area or whatever else so like I guess arguing made like we need to finish earlier for our players to do an appropriate cooldown. But a lot of time it's like well, but then we have such a little court time to begin with that we want to use that extra ten minutes to get more volume on stuff. Yeah, and so like it just our cooldown just never happens the way that we'd like it to. And then Jordan with our under fourteen group is like Jordan will usually teach a private lesson at seven p or at six p m. So when our program finishes and all of his players will kind of hang out in the sideline and they'll do their their cooldown on the sideline, which is great. Like it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Jordan was on vacation one week and so he didn't have a court at six but god bless his players they were out there trying to go through their cooldowns yeah. well on like members court yeah which is like warms my heart in the same sense and this also exactly. crushed my soul going over me like guys you're such a group of little pros but you yeah. gotta get it. <laughs> you know what i mean and that's just like and... again, to the environment stuff it's like we're we're just we're just not the yep. environment like we're not a perfect environment and we're not anywhere close to a perfect environment you know Yeah, I would hate you for that. If if I were working there, I'd be so pissed. Yeah, I I hate
0: stuff like that. That like when you have when you have athletes who are actually committed and are like being professional, and then the club setup doesn't allow them to do it. drives me nuts. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) sorry to to, to say that, but it's just uh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've had I've had players who were like gonna string their own rackets at the club. And there was some discussion of whether they wouldn't be allowed to use the stringing machine and i was like seriously like they're showing this commitment i'm like give me a break like do we want to develop players or not i'm like yeah yeah. "Yeah, that stuff drives me nuts but
1: anyway anyway interesting though so i don't know yeah and and, like always too we certainly don't have all the answers and stuff so i'm I'm curious or any answers (laughs) or any really yeah We have one's what's our what's our track record of actually answering a question that's been asked (laughs) like
0: Um, two for 12
1: sorry go ahead But I'm always curious, like it's, it's stuff in passing. I've run into a lot of tennis coaches and stuff that have mentioned that they have tuned into the pod, so that's really cool. Them, thanks. But um, I'm always like, I'd, I'd love to hear more from other people about it too, right? Because I'm sure there's stuff that we're forgetting or not thinking of. And, um,
0: yeah, yeah, hundred 100%, percent, yeah, hundred percent on and on any of the topics on this one or on the if you got thoughts about what makes someone a good coach or whatever, then yeah, shoot us a message. No, just um, this one. Instagram. <laughs> Just specifically, Al's program. What do you What do you think of the Supreme what Court? What do you like Let about it? <laughs> One to five stars. No, but uh, speaking of which, uh, Nick Coots reached out and sent me a message on Instagram. We just shout out uh, Nick
1: Coots. Is there just for a quick thing? Have you thanks. ever heard anyone say a bad word about Nick?
0: No, it's impossible. Yeah,
1: it's possible. No, nah, he's a legend. I met he's... him. I met him. um for the first time six months ago. And when he shook my hand, I felt like I was the only tennis pro in the room. <laughs> Fun fact, when he first met me, he introduced himself as Nicholas. And I don't know if he remembers this and I don't
0: know what the reason was for it, but um, huh. very, uh, very polite, uh, polite guy. No, Koots okay. is, a, is a legend um, and he's doing super good work out in Alberta. But he he wrote me this. And he and I chatted about it a little bit, um, but he, uh, I guess uh, my answer wasn't good enough because he was still very keen to hear, uh, hear us discuss it on the pod. So I think he wants i think he wants the opinion of someone a little bit more uh, intelligent. But he said, with being in Alberta, my personal goal is, to tr- is trying to educate our families on what it takes to reach your goals. Uh, my question for Alan, You, how do you educate families to do more when the level in their area is low? Do you show them examples of players in their age group that are top in the country? Understandably, it all depends on their goals, but let's say they're trying to play international tennis um so he's talking in case it it didn't come through he's talking because we had some other conversation around it but he's talking about you know um educating families on the commitment required both in terms of tournaments to play fitness to do hours on court um educating them on like sort of what it takes um to reach to reach an international level um specifically with the challenge of being in an area where the level is maybe a little bit lower like alberta so
1: yeah. He thought? Man, that's a that's a great, first off, that's a great question. Um, second, I feel like I am uh, contractually obligated to outline the, the power of the, the long-term athletic development document by tennis Canada. Um, yeah. But like, and he did mention that, but go on. Yeah. Like Nick knows that too, but I find, I mean, not to segue this another way, but a lot of times when you tell parents in Toronto or Vancouver, or wherever uh, what the hour requirement is, or like what the actual financial commitment or time commitment is, they just don't believe you either. Mm. So I think like, I think sometimes you can give everybody all the right answers in the world. And the parents just don't believe you. Like, no, no, my kid's going to be different. And it's like, no, they're not, they're not just listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So I think all, all you can do. And like Nick's are really smart guys. So I sometimes wonder with questions like this, is he just trying to help us out to give us a topic to, to chat <laughs> about, you know what I mean? But like, no, I just think it, it starts with like, clearly outlining the hours and just showing examples of, if, if there's examples to be had of people that didn't do that, then that's um, super impactful. I remember this this Ace story where there was Ace had a player that was a national champion. I can't remember their their name, but that national champion, after winning a nationals, had cut back their weekly training training by two hours. So they did two hours less on court a week. Okay, And um, the next year, it's something like they dropped out of the top 10 in the rankings, and the parents couldn't understand what had happened and i don't remember which coach this was but one of the ace coaches just outlined to them it's like yeah well two hours a week might not seem like a lot but that's however many in a month and over whatever and then the the second highest ranked player or whatever had had added something like three hours of training so now all of a sudden it's like five hours a week that somebody wasn't getting where it's i don't guess yeah. the compounding nature of the hours in the sport are just like unbeaten and we've talked about it before too and this will be the end of my my rant but it's just like I really feel if a player just meets the standard for long term athletic development and, uh, hours, they've got a really, really good chance of making it, regardless of your environment or the coach that you're with. If you like at a minimum, if you can do that. You probably have a really mm-hmm. good chance of making it, whatever your definition of making it is. So that'd be okay. how I would start. It's like that. But on to you, Zach.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think hours and hours and tournaments as well. I'd imagine. I think you probably, probably a little bit of both, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I conveniently when, when he asked me this, I, I reflected on it and then sent him, I think a 12 minute uh, voice note on WhatsApp. And now I forgot everything that I said, but I think, I think part of it, I just, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, essentially said what you said. I, I said, you know, you can reference the TC LTAD, which he was already using, but I said like, there's also LTADs from other countries at all and then you can show and look and say hey the us says this new zealand says this france says this it's all in this ballpark here there's pretty much there's good consensus on it and then i said there's also um There's also uh, a couple of sort of scientific studies like Kovacs and Makar Reed and Miguel Crespo and those ITF guys who have published articles on like what the, you know, a sample training program for an international level, so-and-so. And and they've put together things or they've surveyed athletes and coaches and stuff. And that gives you another good resource to go like, look, here's what, you know, here's the population of athletes that they studied. They took these out and here's the hours that they were doing. Like this, it's published in a scientific journal. Like it's, it's there. Um, So I think, I think stuff like that, but then i also think um i also think and this is what i added is like uh inter- you know exposure to other environments so it doesn't have to be international necessarily but if you're in alberta then exposure to ontario um but if you're in canada then maybe it's exposure to the us and if you're in the us maybe it's exposure to europe or whatever but like i think exposure to other environments for all parties i think for for the athletes to not just see the level, but then they, they chat and you hear, and then you're at the tournament and you see uh, these, you know, the, the kids from this country they were, they were here this morning at seven 30 practicing. And then I see them again at five o'clock after the matches are done, they're training. And then the parents talk to other parents and they find out how much so and so is practicing. And you're talking to the coaches and stuff. um, You know, I think that, I think that as well, just to open, open people's eyes. I think that can be very beneficial. um, And I think yep. even just as a, coach who's in a position to sort of quote unquote convince or persuade these parents i think also to have that experience even if they don't come with you but then to come back and go oh yeah when i was in you know when i was in france for uh, tarbs you know i talked to this coach and we saw this and i tell you this is how much they were all training and this and that like i think drawing on your own experiences but i think once again international experiences or experiences outside of the environment i think that can be um one strategy anyway um to yeah. to to persuade people.
1: Yeah. I'll I'll jump into I think like anecdotally. Um I think I think it's important for the coach as well if they really want to hammer the message home. It's not necessarily a conversation that happens once and then it's like, well I told them. Now now it's up to them. Or I mean personally I've certainly uh, been annoying as all hell with a bunch of parents where it comes up constantly, it comes up weekly, I send a bunch of texts about it, about about the hours, about the hours, about the hours. And I've probably ruined some relationships with parents to be honest about continuing to outline that their player wasn't doing enough Mm. to the point where, again, it's been like really annoying. Mm. Um, So, and I'm not suggesting that's the right way to to go about it either, but it's like, just on a personal note, it's like, how do I sleep at night? And if I have a player that I think has a lot of potential, that if they just did all the things that they should have been doing, they could be really, really good. And again, this has come up before, but part of that is because I have an ego. Like I want my players to be successful. Um, But I can, I don't sleep well at night if I've had the conversation about the hours or about what is required one time. I sleep well at night. It's like if it's, if I go to bed undoubtedly, like not questioning that I've done everything I can do to out, outline to this goddamn parent that their kid needs to be doing more. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And now this is, no. and then things segue, but part of that too is like if a player says to me they have a certain goal, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you as best as I know what you need to do to achieve your goal. Now, throughout Mm -hmm. the longevity of a player being in your program, goals can change. So I think sometimes what happens as well is like when a player's goal changes to be maybe less ambitious than it originally was, but they don't tell the coach that I find that's when relationships break down a lot or like it would be like this, this one kid named Joe Spear, great, great kid um, made nationals a bunch of times when he was with Toronto Tennis Academy then came to us after some injuries and long story short is he's like, Hey, I really want to get a, um, like a scholarship in the States. I was like, great. And he's like, I want to get a division one scholarship. I'm like, okay, this is what's required. He's like, great. And to his credit, he was really doing all the stuff that was required. And then it changed a little bit where he was like, you know what? Like, actually I think I might go for a division three scholarship. I was like, okay, this is what you need to do. He's like, great, great. And then one day he just, he called me or he just texted me. He's like, Hey man, do you have a, his training had sort of fallen off a little bit. Um, and he just wasn't nearly as intense as he used to be. And he used to be really, really intense but it was only like a two week period of this happening. Anyway, long mm-hmm. story short, this kid, Joe texts me. He's like, Hey, do you have a chance to chat? I'm like, sure. Um, he's like, listen, man, I think, I think I'm done. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I just like, I'm really getting into some acting stuff. Um, I have some other goals and like, I've really, really loved tennis, but I think sometimes it's like, I like the idea of going after these scholarships, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's really for me. And this is also after, after he got offered some stuff as well, but it's mm-hmm. funny. We're like, I've, they don't talk to the kid much anymore, but I had a great relationship the entire time that I was training him. And I have a, um, a, I think a really good relationship with him now because he kind of never messed around where like when he, when he really knew he was out, he didn't like shy away from telling me that. Cause again, we talked about it last week, but it's like as a player and a coach, if we're both working towards the same goals and the relationship can be pretty easy. And if those, those goals change then um, and we're both on the same page about it, that can make it pretty easy. But this is a yep. very long winded story of saying like, uh, if a player is wanting one thing and a coach is wanting another thing, then it just never seems to line up the way that it should. And why would it ever? So hopefully there's some uh, benefit in sharing that story. Right. But what were we talking
0: about? We we were answering Coot's question, Um,
1: (laughs) but yeah, no,
0: I mean, and and to tie into that, like one of the things that I've reflected on as part of this whole leadership reflection, looking at the coaches and leadership styles and also reading some other things is the value of communication. I mean, all these coaches talk about the importance of the bond with the player. And if you talk about all sorts of other, of course, leadership uh, documents and studies or whatever, they talk about communication. And it's so important for me, open and honest communication for the exact reason that you outlined. We have to be, we have to be honest with each other. We have, to be, yep. we have to be honest with each other. It doesn't mean we have to share every detail of our lives, but we have to be honest with each other in terms of yep. you didn't meet the standard. I, hey, what you said, I felt bad because of this. This is my goal this, and so on and so forth. Like as soon as you start to hide stuff, it just makes things so difficult because we're both reacting to one another, right? right. My feedback to the player is dependent on their behavior and how I interpret that behavior. And their behavior is a reaction to what my behavior and what i'm doing and so we're reacting to one another and if we're acting or reacting based on incomplete information then inevitably we make assumptions and sometimes those assumptions are right but quite often they're wrong yeah and so i think yeah open and honest communication is is critical and that goes like you said in, ter- in terms of um in terms of being aligned what, being being honest about what your goals are um and i think also with parents too you know open and yeah. honest communication with parents yeah um
1: the I other thing think- that i yeah go ahead. I- I was going to say, to segue that in, it's like the open and honest, and it's like continuing to hammer home when the the hours are not getting done, right? Or it's like within, if you if they still don't understand what the standard is, then you need to continue to have difficult conversations and be a little annoying and a pest about it, right? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Were... No, I
0: was going to say, I just remember the, the other thing that I said to Coots, which I maybe this isn't really helping him much because I'm just, re- <laughs> just rehashing the things that I said, but for the benefit of others, I guess, like the other thing I said to him is is to reflect on your brand, I suppose, because I think... You know, it's if your brand is we're, and I'm not saying this is the case, but if your brand is we're just another Alberta Academy, then, of course, why wouldn't people just want to copy what everyone else in Alberta is doing? But if you brand yourself as we do things differently, we do the extraordinary, we go above and beyond. We're different. Right. We're not normal. If that's your brand, if that's your identity, then I think people are more likely to buy into this idea of oh man he's asking us to do something crazy but that's not so weird because that's what we're about we do crazy things you yeah. have to be crazy to be pro so on and so forth but if you're if your image or if you're perceived as just another place to send my kids to tennis which once again i'm not saying is the case but if that's the image then it's difficult to say hey let's go and do let's let's step out of line let's do something different yeah. um it's much more challenging so yeah yeah we'll i say. think um I think that's a challenge but it goes it goes back to our android our discussion of tennis development environment and like what are the factors that uh you know that's one of them is your ability to persuade people to to up their training hours and to to commit to the right level that's a part of developing players yep. you know it's not just about the the quality of the work that you do on court
1: yeah and the very last part of that and I think this is a an easy part of the sell in Canada is like um we all have massive wait lists for our programs um, so if, if there's a player who's not willing to meet the standard or not listening to the message, then maybe it's time for them to find another environment.
0: Well, that's part of the demandingness as well, to go back to coaching stuff and, and being demanding is mm-hmm. like, what's, yeah, what is your response? And, and I don't have the answer, but what is your responsibility to the athlete? Right. Yeah. Because you have a couple things. First of all, theoretically, if you, I mean, this is getting into a whole other discussion, but why not? But like, if you identify as an academy or a, or an environment that develops professional tennis players or that strives to develop division one athletes and professional tennis players yeah on the one hand if someone then says that's not my goal mm-hmm. then two things first of all i mean if that's then this isn't the right place for you second of all if every time someone says oh actually i want to reduce their commitment you just let them then maybe arguably are you not being demanding enough whereas they, if you were more demanding and said, no, you have to, then maybe they would struggle for a couple of weeks and then come back into the groove and find, Hey, you know what? Yeah. Okay. I can handle this. And then they, maybe they get a good result and it motivates them again. So there's those two arguments for like, why you shouldn't tolerate that. But then on the flip side, there's the person argument, which is like, like you, like maybe you've developed a relationship with this person for years. And then is it really the moral thing to do to go say, all right, well, fuck off. You're not welcome here anymore. Like how do you handle the personal human emotional side of that? So I don't know. I don't have an answer, but yeah. yeah, but I don't have an answer, but I think those, I think we have to consider those things. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I guess maybe people are, maybe people already are. I shouldn't assume that they're not, but like, but I, I do think there's some argument to be made for if they're not willing to make the commitment, then they're not welcome in the program because you're yeah. taking the place of someone else who maybe 100%. is willing to make that commitment 100%. and does yeah. have that level. And yep. furthermore, our job is to push people. -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. If they're not willing to accept us pushing them and saying, "No, you have to train this much because this is what you want to do," or "Or I believe that you can do more and you do so forth," they're not willing to accept that. Then it's not right for them. But I, but we can't just be shitting on people saying, "Ah, well, I've known you for four years, but fuck off. I don't want to." Like, you know, tennis can still mean something to them, and and their relationship with their coach can still mean something to them. So,
1: yeah, yeah. But then sometimes you have to have those conversations, right? And I think sometimes there's this this element of being taken like your program being taken advantage of to some extent sometimes mm. right yeah um but then it's also to say like it's i think you're in an environment and i'm in an environment where we, we've we luckily got the flexibility to politely tell people hey this is no longer a good fit for you but i feel for people that are like in really difficult private club environments where it's like you can't you know you can't have like that conversation and i i'm not sure if what Nick's environment is like in that regard i think it's it's a, it's a private club right
0: um mm, i
1: Think so, yeah. I think that's, so. that, that's tricky too. Like, it's like, I mean, yeah, we, we gave all these answers based on like it, us having the ability to have those tough conversations, but it's like a private club dynamic is different. So, I mean, that might be part of the challenge for Nick is like he can't get rid of those players, <laughs> you, know, you know, he can't get rid of the people people in his program. Not saying that he wants to either, but because because again, it goes back to he said, like, how do I get them to do all the things that I think are required, you know? But I guess yeah. if you're in an environment where like they just Even if they don't, they're still going to be there. It's like, well, that's tricky. Then I guess it's like in that case, and I'd just wrap it up with like, then they're they're lucky to have a coach like Nick who can get a lot done in a very short period of time. So,
0: Look at you bringing it all back together. Bam. Making everyone feel good. Um, Coots, maybe next week you make a new Instagram account with a fake name and send in that question again and see if you get a real answer. (laughs) Good good
1: luck. uh, Yeah. All right. You got anything else you want to cover? Mm, not really. No, but I do. Next, next week, I do want to rack your brain on some some um, athlete development stuff as it relates to, like, genetics and other things.
0: It's all about genetics. You got to test them when they're three years old and then determine if they're good athletes.
1: 100%. Test the parents. Don't even worry about the kid. You want the program? Oh, I'm testing the parents.
0: Don't get me started on that idea, man. I've had that idea for years.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. That was The Grey Zone. Bye.